back to the season finale of Warehousing Unboxed, an IWLA podcast. Today's episode will explore the top warehouse real estate trends that are reshaping the game, followed by an insightful interview with three IWLA members and real estate titans as they give listeners a sneak peek into what to expect from the market in 2024 and beyond. Before we talk real estate, the Warehousing Unbox team at IWLA just wanted to take a minute to thank all of our listeners for such an exciting and awesome first season. Over the course of these six episodes, we've tackled the history of warehousing, technology trends, government affairs, fulfillment, and more. We're very excited to see what the future of this podcast has in store, and we hope you'll continue to tune in as we unbox more aspects of this thriving industry. Now, back to real talk. Real estate talk, that is. As we know from previous episodes, the third-party logistics industry has undergone a massive transformation over the past decade, driven by factors that are reshaping how we approach warehousing as a whole. So, how does this reshaping affect the warehouse space itself? Let's unpack some of the top warehouse real estate trends that are influencing the landscape today. E-commerce boom and fulfillment centers. The e-commerce boom has fueled the demand for dedicated fulfillment centers. Warehouses are evolving to meet the growing needs of online retail with a focus on quick order fulfillment, efficient inventory management, and seamless integrations with e-commerce platforms. This requires buildings to be designed in ways that have never been needed before. Ceiling height, aisle space, temperature are just a few of the considerations that are needed to build spaces fit for fulfillment. Can a drone fly in my warehouse is even a question that has started popping up more and more these days. Sustainability as a core strategy. Environmental consciousness is shaping warehouse real estate decisions. Companies are increasingly seeking sustainable practices, incorporating energy efficient designs and opting for green spaces. The focus is not only on reducing the carbon footprint, but also on creating spaces that align with eco-friendly principles. Strategic location planning. Proximity to major transportation hubs, last mile delivery efficiency, and strategic positioning are more critical now than ever. Warehouses are now being located in places that will minimize transportation costs, reduce delivery times, and enhance overall supply chain agility. Not only do warehouse owners need to know where to build today, they also need to know where to build tomorrow. Nearshoring revolution. An emerging trend taking center stage is nearshoring. As companies reassess their global supply chain strategies, the shift towards bringing manufacturing and distribution closer to home is transforming warehouse real estate decisions. Proximity to consumer markets, reduced lead time, and heightened supply chain resilience are driving the nearshoring wave. These trends are not just shaping the warehouse landscape, they're defining the future of warehouse buildings. We've covered some of the hot topics affecting the warehouse real estate market, but now it's time to hear from our experts. Please enjoy Pete Quinn, National Director of Industrial Business Development for Sansone Group, as well as Bob Feinberg and Tom Jones, both Senior Vice Presidents and Principals at Collier's New Mexico, El Paso. Hi, everyone. 
everyone, and welcome back to Warehousing Unboxed, an IWLA podcast. This is going to be episode six, which will be our season finale episode. Yay, we made it through one season. This is a very exciting episode because we are here today to talk all about warehouse real estate with some real estate experts. So I'm very excited to welcome our guest today. We have Pete Quinn, National Director of Industrial Business Development for Sansone Group. Bob Feinberg, Senior Vice President and Principal of Colliers New Mexico and El Paso, and Tom Jones, Senior Vice President and Principal of Colliers New Mexico and El Paso. So thank you all for being here today. We're, again, very excited to have you as our season finale guests. And let's go ahead and start with just kind of getting a background on each of you. Can you give a brief summary of your career history in warehouse real estate and kind of how you became leaders in the industry? Let's start with Pete. I got into commercial real estate 35 years ago, plus started with a, a company that at the time was called Eaton and Loth as a broker and is now Loth Property Group. And about six years into it, opened up my own shop in Indianapolis called Summit Realty Group. Once Summit took off, we became an alliance company with Cushman and Wakefield. A couple of years after that, Cushman and Wakefield made me the executive managing director of industrial for Cushman. And that's when I really started traveling a lot and overseeing the management of six, 700 industrial brokers. So I did a lot of deals around the country. And then when Cushman switched ownership, then I went back to Summit Realty Group and we sold our company to Collier's. About two years after that, they made me their national director of industrial. And I did that for several years, very much enjoyed it. But about a year and a half ago, I got an opportunity to go to work for a developer based out of St. Louis, Sansone Group. And they were just an extraordinary, it, it's run by four brothers, four Sansone brothers. They're extraordinary people. And it was an extraordinary company. So I took advantage of the opportunity. And after 35 years in brokerage, I'm now a developer. That's awesome. Okay. What about you, Bob? What's What's your history in the industry? Well, after the first half of my first uh, life, which was growing up in the casino business in Las Vegas. I decided to change paths, came to New Mexico because that's where the dart landed and started actually in residential real estate. That lasted for about seven months when I took a commercial call one day and there were no emotions. I made the deal in about three weeks, got a check, and that was the First commercial deal and last residential transaction I participated in because I deciphered the difference between emotions with homes and facts with commercial. Stayed with that residential company, but they let me be a commercial broker for about six or seven months. And then I decided to open on my own. I opened a little company called First Commercial Real Estate Services out of the third bedroom of my home. And because of my background, I guess, in Las Vegas, dealing to the Frank Sinatras and the Telly Savalas and those types of people, I really didn't have an intimidation level calling anybody. So I picked up the phone and I actually started calling major retailers, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, the Lowe's, did business with all of them for 25 years from Dick Sporting Goods the three I mentioned prior, a lot of big bucks, big box things Tom and I have worked on for the last 20 years. And then we both recognized what was happening to the world of retail and to the sociological fabric of America, which 
perhaps we have time later, I'll discuss my opinion about all of this and why this is so good for our industrial business. Um, we completed a um, million square foot, 110 acre Amazon deal last year. And we are very proud and pleased to be working for the Sansone group. I've known that group ever since I used to get magazines from the International Council of Shopping Centers. And I remember the Sansone ads were on the left columns of these big magazines that came every month. And I just always remembered that company for some reason. And here we are with the honor of representing them. And I think probably one of the biggest uh, ground up industrial deals taking place in America today. We're just under 4 million square feet in El Paso, Texas. We have signed our first lease with an internationally known global name. I can't mention it yet, but it'll be out in the next couple of weeks and we break ground next month. So that's as capsulized as I can make it. <laughs> that's awesome. And I guess before we get to Tom, if someone were to you know, want to find out about this announcement, where would you, where should they go to, to read about it? You can go to our Collier's El Paso, Texas site on the web, just Collier's El Paso, and you should be able to find that listing there. Awesome. All right. How about you, Tom? Well, let's see. I've been in the business. Oh gosh. A little over 23 years. Bob and I have worked together that long. I too started in residential, you know, and prior to that, I spent about 20 years in the food service business, a lot of celebrity type of stuff. And so I had the opportunity to work with Bob about, like I said, 23 years ago. And we did, uh, we did a lot of retail for a lot of years in the region and, and throughout the country, actually. And as Bob mentioned, we found this, you know, this intersection between retail and industrial, and it was a natural to to move over to the industrial side. We are uh, absolutely pleased to be working with the Sandstone Group in El Paso, and hopefully there'll be an opportunity for us to, to leave our contact information. So if if the property information isn't as readily available as you'd like, we're happy to happy to send it to everybody. That's so exciting. And since this episode is going to come out pretty much in the beginning of the year or in quarter one, I kind of want to just kick this off with asking, what do you each think some of the major trends you see affecting the warehouse real estate industry market in 2024? What are some of the hot topic issues, some things that you think people should be looking out for when going into this year? I'm looking forward to 2024. 2023 was a, was a good year for industrial real estate. Uh, it wasn't as good as the year before, but it's still a very, very good year. Uh, right after COVID hit, we, we saw for the last eight to 10 years, industrial has really become the darling of a lot of investors. It's been a lot of activity. And when COVID hit, it, it made it go even faster. What was driving it was e-commerce. And more and more people were buying their products online, more and more companies we're changing the way that they provided their products to their clients. And our industry really exploded eight to 10 years ago. And then COVID just exaggerated that, you know, instead of a growth of eight to 10% a year in e-commerce, it just ballooned. So people were, were leasing up space as fast as, as we could build the space. That slowed down a little bit due to the economy, due to interest rates had gone up. And so people didn't make decisions if they didn't have to make decisions. 
And I think 2024, I think we're going to see some more growth because I think a few people uh, took the year off last year. Some of the trends we're going to see, I think it's going to be dictated a little bit by the by politics, like a lot of things are. It's an election year. I've read in, from several different sources that we are probably going to see the Fed's lowering interest rates, which is going to spur some activity. People are trying to utilize their space uh, as effectively and efficiently as they can. So we're seeing a, a small growth in multi-story facilities to get more bang for their buck. One of the biggest changes in commercial real or warehouse real estate is, and one of the biggest uh, challenges, like for many industries, is labor. So anything companies can do to lower their labor, to, to keep uh, the, their labor down and not have to hire thousands and thousands of people, they're going to robotics and material handling equipment that uses less labor. And that's going to have an impact on the real estate uh, in a lot of different ways. For an example, if they start to use more robotics, they have to have super flat floors. Uh, they want to stack as high as they can, so ceiling heights are going up. When I first got in the business, uh, a distribution center might be 24 foot clear. That was considered very high clear heights. Now it's almost standard. You're seeing 36 foot clear and you're seeing a lot of companies go to 40 foot clear. So we anticipate that happening again. Uh, another trend we're going to see in 2024 is the continued growth of the uh, third party logistics firms. They're dominating the new buildings, doing more business in the DC area. We think that's going to continue. And we're going to start, we're going to continue to see the distribution facilities. You know, they used to just be big boxes and that's not the case anymore. They, they need to attract labor. They need to retain labor. So for an example, almost all the warehouses have air conditioning because they want to be able to compete for the labor. So if somebody wants to work in a distribution center and company A, he's working in a distribution center with no air conditioning, it's 90 degrees all day long. Company B has air conditioning. He's going to go to company B. So, and they're, they're putting in facilities inside the distribution centers to enhance them keeping their labor. So it's continuously changing and it's going to be modernized a lot. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of that later on. Thanks, Pete. That was a great overview. Well, we're trying, I'm trying to coin a word and have been for several years called Industrial, And it's now in my bio got the permission from Kyrus to do that. Think about retail. Before it's in that beautiful store with the shelves and the wonderful place that you have to park your car and you know walk a half a mile in, where is all that inventory? Sitting in, in warehouses, sitting in distribution facilities, sitting in trains. So I don't think retail would, would do very well without industrial. And industrial depends a lot on the consumer, the, the retail buyer. Because of the sociological change that I mentioned earlier, you may ask, what is that? What am I talking about? So 20 years ago, when I was a young father, the weekend came and it was, honey, do you? Honey, will you weekend, right? So you load the kids in the car. You're going to go to Lowe's. You're going to go to the dry cleaner. You're going to run by the grocery store and this and that. Tell me about the quality of that time with your kids or your mom and dad or a sick relative. It's not very much quality. You schlep the kids in the car, you're driving around for three hours. Today, because of the digitized economy that we're living in, you can take that four hour trip, 
pare it down to 20 minutes. The next day, everything you wanted to buy today is at your house on the door. And the time that you would have spent in the car shopping now becomes more quality time with your loved ones, with your kids, with your family, with yourself. So I, I think the productivity of quality time in, in, in humanity is actually getting better because of this change that was pushed much faster by COVID. It is today the world of convenience and instant gratification. So the, the sociological change is dynamic. I think it's here to stay. I don't think people are going to go back to the old days because the reason we were so thrilled with computers in the digital age was to do things more efficiently, faster, and ultimately, and hoping to end up with more quality lifestyle, quality time. So to me, this, this breeds more quality industrial facilities to be able to de deliver quickly, to deliver fresh, to deliver quality. And I think that that's what America and ultimately the globe is looking for and expecting today. Thanks for that. That boy, you can feel that for sure. You know, a couple things, you know, that one may be obvious, the other one, uh, the second one may not be, but, you know, while uh, kind of warehouse and distribution has kind of dropped off a bit, manufacturing continues, uh, the construction spending continues to be, be high, particularly because of the CHIPS Act and that has helped in driving incentives. And so, I think one of the major trends that we're going to see in 2024 is the continuation of onshoring and reshoring. You know, Accenture did their research and they have said, quote, specifically by 2026, 85% of companies plan to manufacture and sell their products in the same region. Meaning that, right, there's no more going to be, you know, manufacturing in Asia and then shipping it over here. They want they want to avoid the supply chain disruption and manufacture in the region that they plan to sell. And I think the second one is, and Pete may have mentioned it about the temperature controlled facilities. I think we're going to see massive growth in the cold storage industry. And folks are saying that by 2030, that the inventory is gonna double. So that, because of you know the facilities being antiquated and everybody looking for you know larger more technological facilities so i think those are two things that we're going to see in 2024 i i would i would add something and i'm glad tom brought it up we have seen increases in onshoring and nearshoring which i think is absolutely essential for the for our country uh, just for security purposes we learned a lot of lessons during covid uh, when government shut things down and uh, people weren't going into the office and stuff, we learned a lot, things that weren't common knowledge. For an example, 85% uh, of our pharmaceuticals are, are uh, manufactured in Asia. I think at one time, I don't know if it's changed, but I think uh, 100% of some of our most uh, critical medicines were manufactured in China. That's not sustainable. That's not safe. That's not secure. So I think it's while it is increasing, I think it's imperative that the federal government starts creating enhancements, incentives for companies to come back and bring manufacturing back to the United States. 
I, I think that's that's something we learned when they shut everything down during COVID. And we're starting to see some of it, but I do anticipate that increasing. So Pete, you kind of mentioned when you were talking about the trends that in the past eight to 10 years, it's been just a major boom in kind of more industrial real estate. Can you talk a little bit about the construction pricing now as compared to before that boom, or just kind of where has been the history of pricing differed recently? Well, recently, going back five years, let's say, uh, construction pricing was pretty consistent and it was it was pretty competitive. Then when everything was shut down during COVID and you just couldn't build the buildings fast enough, uh, it really jumped. And just like everything else, food prices are high, energy prices are high, but the materials and the construction services, they got very, very expensive very, very quickly. When you when you combine that with the raise in interest rates, raise in the rise in cap rates, we've, saw, we've seen people's rents double and sometimes triple. And that's that's not sustainable as well. We are going to start seeing that last year it's estimated, and we we work with a lot of contractors, obviously. We saw anywhere from six to ten percent, eight percent maybe, of a decrease in the costs of construction. I think that this year we'll see more of that. I, I think we'll, at least from what I'm reading, I think we'll see two, three, maybe even four uh, interest rates, lowering interest rates. Combine that with the lowering costs of the construction costs, I think that's what's going to lead to a lot of activity in 2024. Bob, Tom, anything to add to that? I could visit the, the reshoring and onshoring a little bit. Tom and I were touring a gentleman from Korea from a very large logistics company in El Paso. And we asked him, this was a year ago, are you fearful of North Korea? And he said, no, we've been doing that for years. It's just sword bantering. And ultimately, that gentleman located a plant that they represent in Mexico. And he, he made a point, and, and we researched a little bit. So think about this. Today's baby boomer population has over $30 trillion in assets. These are people 55 to 65 years old. This, this year and next, the largest segment of America's workforce is going to be retiring. And typically, retirement leads to less spending and a lot of inheritance. So what America is facing, and it's not a bad thing at all, in over the next 30 years, for the 25 and 30-year-olds today, until they're 60 years old, there will be more spendable cash available in the United States of America than has ever been. And that age group that's going to have that money and getting that money, that is the prime time of shopping for people. They've gotten out of college. They probably on their second job, they're married. They're starting to have children. Boy, that's when you're spending a lot of money. You're buying homes. You're buying items for the homes, you're taking vacations, you're paying for education. So that money is going to stay here. It's going to continue to be spent. The beauty of, of reshoring and Mexico being our neighbor is it's safe. There's challenges with the safety, but I, I, I liken it to if you stay out of their business, they'll stay out of yours. There's massive, massive reshoring and onshoring coming to Mexico. Juarez today has 
a little over 70 million square feet of manufacturing and warehouse space with a zero vacancy. And all the major developers are there from Prologis to TPA to Panatoni to, to Trammell. It, it's, it's accessible. You don't have a leader of a country that can say via China, we're shutting this down and too bad. That's not going to happen in Mexico. Tomorrow, it could happen in China. And as Pete alluded to, it's actually at one time 98% of the um, medical delivery systems for antibiotics was manufactured in China. That is, is reflecting back what Pete said. It is not safe. It's actually deadly to have a leader of that country in control of that kind of health saviors for Americans. So, so I think there's fear, but there's safety. And, and then on the good news things, you're sitting, if you're going to Mexico, you're sitting, sitting next to the biggest amount of buyers for so many, many years to come. The shipping is not going to be an issue anymore. The canals aren't going to be an issue anymore because it's just across the border. A couple other things. The Korean workforce is at retirement age. The entire workforce is at the retirement age. And a lot of the Korean kids are not staying there. The Germans are out of working age adults today. China has the fastest aging workforce, plus a 70% drop in births. And China is not cost competitive anymore. If you manufacture or assemble in Mexico, it's cheaper to pay that workforce who is diligent and dedicated to making quality products. So there's a few bits of information that I think are pertinent to our world of industrial going forward for the next 30 or 40 years. Anything to add, Tom? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. You, you know, with, with uh, the labor costs of Mexico and the uh, supply chain security, it makes a lot of sense. And I'd also like to uh, echo what uh, Pete said. You know, we, we, we hope to see, you know, construction costs uh, continue to stabilize. You know, it, it, like anything else, it's a supply and demand issue as, as a lot of, as all of this industrial real estate is being delivered and you know, demand has decreased a little bit, you know, the costs are going to come down and, and the supply chain has, you know, some of the lead times have, have started to stabilize. So we're hoping to see in 2024 that this, that this continues. Uh, but having said that, most of the major markets we're going to uh, probably see, you know, rent hold. But, you know, in some markets, depending on vacancy rates, we may be able to see some rent growth. So not, uh, not all bad. So Tom said earlier that kind of cold or temperature controlled facilities are kind of on the rise. What are some of the physical differences that you notice in warehouses being built today that can kind of sustain more bringing stuff near to the U.S.? What are some, I mean, and we kind of talked earlier about the physical differences that need to be made to make way for technology and to kind of have more automation in the warehouse. So I guess, Pete, if you want to start, what are you seeing that is physically being built differently today that all of these things kind of affect? We, we kind of talked about some of these already, Marina, when we talked about the fact that the ceiling heights are continuing to get higher because of robotics, the floors are going to be a little bit different, super flat floors. We talked about different amenities going into these facilities. Another thing, because of the material they handle equipment, the conveyor systems, 
the warehouse management systems, the robotics, uh, we're seeing uh, bigger power requirements than, than we've seen in the past. So you have to have more power available to these buildings, which, which we're seeing daily. And then, and then doing some things, anything that you can do that's going to help these companies uh, reach their goals and to be innovative. For an example, maybe putting solar panels on the roofs of your distribution centers to have a, a secondary source of power. Power, we went three years ago, we were, we were a, a energy exporter. We were totally energy independent. That changed dramatically. And now we're, we're really beholding, I, I think we're down to the lowest oil reserves we've had in many, many, many years. And uh, we need to fix that. And so if you can think outside the box and be a little bit innovative, for an example, historically, location's always been important to the companies that distribute their product around the globe. They, they put a lot of time and effort to determine where is the most efficient place to stay or to be. And that's still the case, but they're looking at it a little bit differently. Uh, available labor has become huge. They don't want to build a 1.2 million square foot distribution center in an area that they're not going to get enough people to work there. So they really have to pay attention to what the labor availability is, what the, what the power availability is. In manufacturing cases, a lot of them have to have good water supply. So a lot more is going into the decisions on where to put these facilities. And then once you know where you want to put these facilities, then when you build these facilities out, you take all these other things into consideration. Marina, I want to comment a little bit about the cold and, and frozen space. Today in America, I would say 90, 80% of it is 35 to 40 years old. It's dilapidated. It's worn out. It's not high tech. And today we are once again in the age of total convenience and instant gratification. And the customers are seeking and demanding quality food, whether, whether it comes as a meal or a treadmill, it better be quality, it better be delivered on time at my door because I called for it yesterday and I want it today. And these old, cold and frozen facilities are being replaced. I mean, uh, we all saw the run on um, self-storage over the last five or six years. Everywhere you looked, it was self-storage. And then there were car washes. Why? Because self-storage facilities were old and worn out. Car washes were the old ones that, you know, it took eight or 10 minutes to go through. It was dripping when you came home and it was terrible. And today they've got that all handled. Well, I think the same lies true for, for warehousing, whether it's dry storage, that people are demanding a better product faster. We talked last mile. I'm I'm projecting that 50% of drugstores, the corner drugstores, the Walgreens, the CBSs, are going to end up being pickup points in half their space for that neighborhood. The Circle K's, the 7-Elevens, same thing. I think there's going to be lockers for people to go. There are already, but I think it's it's I think it's going to be like a wave across the country as the population gets wealthier and is used to more quality of life and ease and convenience all of this is going to flow into all this new all these new facilities it's going to demand it Ellen, the only thing i can uh, really add is is tagging on to 
that the, the idea of labor and, and providing amenities for labor and and what we're seeing, particularly in the transaction we're currently working on, where companies are actually putting full HVAC in, in the warehouses, as opposed to just EVAP or, or, or fans. And we're finding that cost-wise certainly is very similar between EVAP and HVAC. So if, if companies are able to apply, you know, that, that amenity is, is welcomed by employees. So uh, we're, we're seeing that as a, as a major trend. So basically everything is dependent on, you know, consumer behavior. And so you have to kind of keep an eye on everything that's constantly going on with everybody else. Okay, Bob and Tom, I'm very curious. So obviously you're in a hot market area for real estate. It sounds like New Mexico and El Paso, there's just a lot going on. Can any of the three of you kind of give us some insights as to what are some of the hottest markets right now? So if someone was looking to build or expand into an area, where would you suggest? What are some of the things that they should take into consideration when looking? Well, our, our focus is the border area. And I think the border area all the way from the from the Cal Southern California, as far east as that border can run through Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Texas, again, because of these companies, com well, the companies have been in Mexico for years and years and years, but now it's kind of the place to be because of the safety, because the adjacency to the biggest buying market in the world for the next 30 years. I know that, that interior non-port industrial markets today are suffering a little higher vacancy rate than they were over the last few years, but still in El Paso, uh, Laredo, the moment anything breaks ground, it's typically leased before the roof is on. And we know El Paso quite well, and I think we're at a three and a half percent vacancy and, and we're pre-leasing before we even close on, on a transaction. Big, big spaces. Yeah, the, you know, one of the hot markets, uh, obviously, is Dallas. You know, they delivered some of the, some of the, the, the largest footprints uh, in the country. And so I think that's going to, it's going to remain hot in the sense of maybe not delivering new product, but absorption. That, you know, there's some built product that's ready to go on the ground. So if companies want to relocate to, to the region, certainly Dallas is going to be a great option. Anything to add on that, Pete? Oh, I can tell you in 2023, Dallas was the number one, the amount, uh, number one in the country for the amount of square footage it was transacted. Uh, they had 9% market share and the same old suspects. You want to go where the people are. So Chicago had a huge year. They were number two. Inland Empire, which historically is almost always number one. They were number three. The Pennsylvania I-78, I-81 corridor was number four. Atlanta was five, then Houston. None of those are surprises. It's just why they're so busy. I think Bob hit it on a little bit. If you're if you're by the border, like a Houston or a Dallas, that's helpful. But uh, you want to be by the people. So those corridors are always going to be busy. Some of them are struggling with labor availability for that reason, because there's been so much growth. But my experience over the last 35 years is labor will eventually find itself. If, if you need the labor, eventually you're going to get the labor there. But you're also going to see some markets that historically aren't distribution markets, but because they're geographically, they're they're in a good spot, they're centrally located, and they've got good labor, they have access to rail. You're going to see historically markets that aren't normally considered distribution points that are having some success. Indianapolis, you know, my hometown was eighth in the country last year. They had almost uh, 19,000 or 19 million square feet 
of uh, square footage transacted. So it's it's kind of the same old, same old, except the port cities and the cities located next to the labor are seeing a little bit more activity than they have historically. So that's interesting <laughs> about Indianapolis, because I mean, I, I, Indiana is the crossroads of America, but it sounds like it's like slowly creeping up. Would you say it'd be advisable to kind of build in areas that maybe aren't like number one or number two, but but rising? Well, that's that's the key. When when the market shut down, when when the government first started shutting everything down for COVID, a lot of developers put the brakes on. The reason Sandstone had such great success is they they literally stepped on the accelerator. That's one of the things that really intrigued me about Sandstone. I think they saw things a little bit more clear than a lot of their competitors did, but they started building a lot of a lot of speculative buildings. And that was that was good timing because it's I think Bob mentioned earlier, we were leasing the buildings before the the ground was even broken. That's changed because again the cap rates have gone up pretty significantly. So spec has been really slowed down dramatically all across the country. But where there is some spec development, it's where Bob and Tom were talking about. It's for refrigerated, cooled spaces. There is st still some spec being built there. Indianapolis, I was talking to a gentleman that runs, well, he works with Bob and Tom. He runs their food group. And he said Indianapolis, because of all of the, where the major food manufacturers are located, Indianapolis is in a really, really good location to put refrigerated space, freezer cooler space. So I think you'll see some more spec building. I think we've got four or five right now spec buildings going up around the country, which is unusual. And it's all refrigerated, all temperature controlled space. So I think I'm hoping in 2024, get the election past us. Let's see, let's see where we're going. And when I talk politics, the only reason I talk about politics is it does impact our industry. It impacts us all and maybe our industry a little bit more than others. But when I talk politics, I never mention parties and I never mention individual politicians. I'm, I'm just talking about concepts. And so what I'm looking for in 2024 is us to pay attention to our border security, uh, address interest rates, uh, our energy independence, and just having some control over not doing business with countries that do not, they're not our friends. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And I think if we can start addressing those issues, I could see 2024 being a huge, huge year for our industry. And you you work with the IWLA, who's some of the greatest 3PLs in the country, our members, they're really the most important people in our in our industry, or in, in the United States in a lot of ways. When this, one of the positive things that came out through the whole COVID thing was people started really appreciating what 3PLs do for this country. And when everybody was shut down and everybody was told not to go to work and everybody was told to stay inside and 3PLs kept going, they had to, because they had to get the product through to the, to the consumer, the end users. And I think we've learned a lot and I'm hoping we learned enough that we start, we start making some decisions that are going to strengthen the the country in general. Kind of a plug for IWLA, you know, government affairs is is a big thing for us to kind of keep an eye on things that are affecting the industry from all levels. And so that's something that we keep close watch on. And you can do that as an IWLA member too, which is a nice, just add a thing. I'm going to kind but of that's let's not let's not gloss over that, Marina, because I think yeah. that's one of the many things that makes 
IWA very special. They they do recognize that, and they they are they have been very very responsible for a lot of the positive things that have happened to our industry. That's come out of the efforts of IWLA and and the number of companies that are members and the amount of product that that they're control in the United States. I think it's one of the more important organizations in our country right now. That's awesome. That that's a wonderful endorsement. So I'm going to shift just a little bit, but something talking about 3PLs, obviously that's the IWLA focus. And if you read anything about 3PLs, you are seeing that mergers and acquisitions are happening daily within our membership, within kind of the larger industry. And I'm just curious how 3PL mergers and acquisitions affect the warehouse real estate dynamics and what considerations should be taken into account in these types of situations when this happens. Well, the the way it impacts Bob and Tom and myself and and people in our in our business is it does have the acquisitions do impact the footprint of the different companies. So if company A acquires company B, they're going to do a network optimization on what they've got and it's going to require maybe shifting geography a little bit, maybe shutting down a facility in in the Midwest and adding one to the southeast, things like that. So it it does create activity. And when you do what we do for a living, we're all about the activity. That's that's what keeps bread on our table. So the 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 acquisitions is going to change a lot of the people's foot a lot of the company's footprints and it does spur activity, new buildings, shutting down other buildings. So you got to keep an eye on it. It does have a, a huge impact though. Yeah, I couldn't, I, I mean, just to tag on to that, Pete, you said it, uh, I, you know, as as acquisitions and, and, and mergers happen, you know, companies are going to reevaluate their in-house strategies, you know, implementing micro-fulfillment uh, centers in cities across the U.S. and adjusting fulfillment setups and omni-channel approaches. So I, I, I think, you know, as 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 companies combine and, and, and look at their strategies in 2024, one of the trends we're seeing also is that, you know, while most still outsource their logistics operations, we are seeing some companies now starting, some drug companies doing some direct marketing, some direct shipping to their customers. So, you know, that may be a piece that we may see a little more in, uh, in the coming years. M&A in the industrial business is really no different than M&A in, in any other business. They, they look for better production, more longevity, cutting where things need to be cut, making things more efficient. But that's okay because no matter how efficient they make it, the market is going to continue to grow. So there'll be other companies forming, even though some companies are disappearing through M&A. But to me, it's, it's a great industry with a wonderful future as far as certainly until I'm gone and, and Pete's gone. Pete is much older than I am. Yeah, I feel it sometimes. I'm kidding. <laughs> so I that is all I have for questions, but I kind of wanted to open the floor. Uh, if any of you have any final thoughts or anything that you kind of want to add, now is the time to do so. Does anybody have anything they want to add? My, my final commentary, Marina, would be, and I know I, I almost feel like I'm running for office. I'm not. But this is a critical year for our country and our industry. And we got we to gotta start focusing on the things that are going to keep people fed, uh, keep uh, products and services, be able to keep those supply chains open. And uh, people really need to start looking into this and making sure that we've got the right leadership that's going to get us to where we need to be. 
again, have to side with everything that, that Pete's saying. This, this, this country is the greatest country in the world. It will continue to be. We have to support it and see what's happening in the rest of the world so we do not fall behind. We have to support our industries, our businesses, our manufacturing, and, and continue to be the greatest place in the world to be. And one just final comment, I think if we see uh, cap rate and interest rate compression, I think all of that's gonna happen. All right, well, thank you all so much. And again, I'm with Pete Quinn, Tom Jones, and Bob Feinberg. And this is the season finale of season one of Warehousing Unboxed. Thank you three for being here today. And I uh, hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Marina. Thank you, Marina. We'll see you at so the conference. Much. Yes, yes. We'll see you in April in Orlando. In Orlando. <laughs> see you then. Thank you.